experiences maybe you haven't seen in a while and say, oh, you go to the nine? You go to the 11? You can, oh, I didn't know you still went to this church. I never see you, okay? Um, just, just take that moment. Celebrate the fact that um, our room is full today. Celebrate the fact that we had, we had eight musicians on our platform um, with a full sound. And celebrate the fact that you were still louder than them. Yeah? And that's a reason for joy. Uh, celebrate the fact that we do get to celebrate um, this, this sacrament of baptism today to commemorate what God has done in these people's lives. Not yet. I'm not dressed yet for baptism, just in case you're curious. Um, it is warm, but, you know, I feel an obligation to wear a jacket. I don't know why. Um, I think because, uh, maybe I'll just say this, I think because I take this business so very seriously. That's what it means. I take this so seriously. Me, I don't take myself that way. Well, my wife's my wife. My wife will say I take myself too seriously. She's already laughing. Thanks, wife. Um, um, but that's not why. It's because this is so important. Because what we get to do as a church is exciting and is real. And God does stuff. And he moves in our midst. And we get to celebrate and rejoice in those movements of God in our midst. So, uh, we've got a message today. We're continuing with characters in the New Testament, and then we have a little more worship, and then we'll shift into the time of baptism. I'll give you plenty of explanations. Don't worry about it when that stuff comes. Uh, but let's continue. Today, we get to talk about Nicodemus. Nicodemus in the New Testament. One of my favorite New Testament characters. I love the guy, and I'm really excited we get to talk about him. He has this famous dialogue with Jesus in John chapter 3, which is in itself probably one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible, which has the most famous verse probably in the entire Bible, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. Most of you know this. It's a great verse. So we get to look at these things together. But before I get into it, I want to preface this with just two things. Maybe, maybe today, you are a bit, little bit like Nicodemus, coming to Jesus to ask questions, to find out what does it mean to be born again. Maybe that's you. Or maybe you've been in the Christian walk and faith for a long time, and you've got Nicodemuses in your life. You've got people in your life who are curious. What does it mean for you to be faithful in these things? These are the questions I'm going to come back to at the very end as we close this out. But for now, I want to read our text. It's John chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 to 21. They should be on the screen if we found them. No screen. Okay, you're going to have to listen to the sound of my voice today. I'm so sorry. Okay. If you have a paper Bible, please, or you can grab one from the pew in the rack in front of you, you can find uh, John chapter 3. It's in the Gospel of John, almost at the end of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 1, 2, and then 3. I'll read verses 1 through to 21. Um, Ronnie, if you're looking for the slides, they're on a little blue USB. It's usually plugged into the Apple. If you can't find it, find Nathan Harada, and I gave it to him earlier. Okay? So, okay, good, good, good. Okay, John chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How could these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does, ha, does not believe has already been judged, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This is our word for the Lord from today, okay? Now, we don't have a ton of info about this guy Nicodemus. In fact, there's only three conversations that happen between him and other people in the Gospel of John. We have this one and two other short passages later in the book. So our study of his character has to infer a good deal from uh, what happens in these moments. We have to infer a lot from the conversation. And he ends up having some really important things to say about the nature of what it means to come through, come to faith. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go verse by verse through the passage for a minute. Uh, we won't take, won't belabor it, and I'll highlight some things as we go through it. So let's look at chapter 3, verse 1 first. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. A man for the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Three key facts about his, him. One, we get his name, Nicodemus. It's interesting. It's a Greek name. It's not a Jewish name like Simeon or Levi or Joseph. It's a very Greek name. Nico means conqueror, like your Nike shoes. Nike means victory. Demos means people, like democracy. He's victory of the people. That's his name. It's a very curious name for a leader of the Jews. It might indicate that he is a member of the Jewish diaspora. Remember, the Jews were exiled out of the land. Many of them were born in foreign countries, and they received foreign names because they were part of that other culture. So he may be one of these Jews who grew up in a Greek world, and now he's returned to Jerusalem and has this ruling position there. It's an interesting thing to point out to him. Okay? We learned about his position. He's a ruler 
a ruler. He's one of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Now, the Jews at this time didn't have political governance of themselves. They had this guy named Herod, who was an Idumean, uh, so not really Jewish, and he was this king over them. It was kind of an awkward situation. They had Pilate, the Roman governor, but they had no real autonomy, and so there was a religious council of Jews who governed, uh, sort of pseudo-governed and made decisions for things, and that's called the Sanhedrin. Uh, Nicodemus is part of this council, so he's one of the leaders of Israel. Okay? This is the same council that later will condemn Jesus to death. Just remember that. Okay? So we learn. We learn his name. We learn his uh, position. We also learn his career. He's a Pharisee. A Pharisee is his career. So what's a Pharisee? Yeah, some of you, you know, you know Pharisaical people. You know it's a bad word. You sneer at it. Pharisee, right? You say it in a bad way towards people. But that's, uh, there's actually, it's an interesting group. So the Jews, remember, are sent into exile. Okay? And they're sent into exile because of the book we read this past year, Jeremiah, because they were disobeying God. And there was a movement of Jews who said, you know what? We've all gotten it wrong. We're going to get it right. We're going to work so hard to make sure we, we're going to get every single piece of the law right. We're going to observe the law and more will be extra with the law so that maybe God will restore us. They were going to work hard to make it work. That was what they were going to do. It's very interesting. Now, there's another thing too you should know. The 10 tribes of northern Israel are exiled by the Assyrians or sent away. And one of the things that happened is that they all lost their tribal identity. They went into Israel. They went into exile as Zebulonites and Naphtalites and Ephraimites and Manassites. And they came back as just a mishmash of Jews. And so the Jewish tribes were lost because of the exile. And so what do you do when you don't know who's a priest anymore? Well, I'm going to follow the law and make sure that I follow even the priestly laws. The Pharisees were going to get everything right. So they kind of posture themselves as replacing the priests in this Israelite life. And that's very important for us to know. Now, uh, one of the things we need to know, for all the bad press the Pharisees receive, and they do get in trouble a lot of the times, they are people with good intentions, which doesn't excuse things. But I think we could be more merciful towards them. They have good goals, and they really do want good things, and they really do want to please God, but other stuff gets in the way, and they make some crucial errors along the way that are still instructive for us. Okay, verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Okay, why by night? Why show up at nighttime? And you can't think like, I don't know, nighttime in Vancouver, right? You can't think with like lots of street lights and city lights and towers all over the place. And maybe when you're coming up the highway and they've got those weird purple lights at the moment that are like kind of alien and strange, but still kind of warm. I don't know. They're strange. Don't think that. Think very, very dark. Like think like when you go camping and you're walking between campfires and you kind of like almost get lost on your way to the toilet, like think dark like that. And here's Nicodemus at night meeting with Jesus. Why does he come at night? Well, it seems obvious he's afraid of his fellow Jews. He's afraid of the ruling council. He knows that they've made a judgment about Jesus. We don't like this guy. And he's uncertain about that judgment, and he's afraid to be seen openly meeting with him. That seems to be very clear. Now, why are they upset with Jesus? Well, it's an unsanctioned religious movement in the first place. They haven't blessed it, right? They're the stewards of good, what it means to be good Jews, and here's a guy who's outshining them, and they don't like that. Um, and probably, and more importantly, they recognize that there's a subtle threat to their power in what Jesus is saying. There's, there's something he's doing that's going to make them uneasy. 
Okay? So, he's still drawn to Jesus. Why? Why is Nicodemus still drawn to Jesus? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think that Jesus is the most attractive person in all of history. I don't mean physically. The scriptures tell us explicitly there was nothing in his appearance to make us desire him. But what you see again and again is people just, they hear about Jesus and they want to be around him. They want to be near him. They're, dra- they're, mis- they're drawn to him. They're pulled to him. You know, people in all walks of life and all circumstances, wherever they are, Pharisees and prostitutes and everybody in between are drawn and attracted to Jesus. He's just so immensely magnetic. People found something in his presence they couldn't get anywhere else. In fact, it goes on today. People, people continually are drawn to Jesus, and they think about him and imagine him. In fact, they will imagine him in any capacity they can, just so they don't have to take him as Lord, right? Oh, let's rethink Jesus. Let's recast Jesus. Let's, and they're still, they're still deeply attracted to Jesus. They just haven't acknowledged that maybe there's something behind that attraction, Okay. So Jesus is the most attractive person in history. His followers are not so attractive. Okay? You can again look around the room and remember that that's the case. <laughs> All right? We, we stink. Right? We don't make Jesus look that good. Right? I mean, look at the press the church has had in the last 10 years. Oh, my word. I mean, Jesus is still amazing, but his church has got some big problems. Um, and we've got to deal with that. In fact, this is something, if you're following along in the notes, you can write this down. I think the devil will focus attention on the foibles of Christians to distract from the attractiveness of Jesus. The devil wants to get the world's attention on how nasty you are as a way to distract people from just how awesome Jesus is. So let me remind you that you don't have to be the end all, be, be, the, be it. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to look great. You don't even have to be perfectly aligned with everything. You just have to remember that your job is to point more to Jesus than to yourself. And when the attention starts coming, well, what about these people? What about this? You need to bring the conversation back to the person of Jesus. Yeah, but it's about Jesus. It's not about us. Okay? We're going to come back to this in a few minutes. In this verse, verse 2, uh, Nicodemus addresses Jesus as a rabbi teacher. I think it's interesting because other times people come to Jesus and say, Rabbi, do this thing for me. And he says, why do you call me Rabbi? Don't call anyone Rabbi. But Jesus doesn't rebuke Nicodemus here. That strikes me as somehow noteworthy. Um, And I think we can infer that Nicodemus seems to mean it. Other people call him Rabbi, call him teacher, but they want to get an edge. They want to do something else. And Nicodemus comes and says, Rabbi, and he means it. You are a Rabbi. I'm here to be taught. And so they have an open conversation. And Jesus begins to speak to him like a true rabbi. Nicodemus says these words. He says, we know. It's interesting, plural. We know. He's just one guy, right? It's not like, you know, me and my part. It's we, we know these things. And I think he's speaking of the rulers. He's speaking of this group of Sanhedrin. We know that the deeds of Jesus can only be done by God. We know this. Um, and so he's confessing something important. Okay, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus answers as a teacher. Okay? The teacher speaks, usually. The teacher will say something, and then the student says, Amen, in response to it. Amen means truly, right? Like, I don't know, the sun has risen today, and you say, Amen, it's true, right? But Jesus prefaces his comments with Amen. In other words, there's no room for debate, debate here, excuse me, argument here. 
By starting with amen, amen, uh, he, he sets his authority in this kind of stratospheric level. It's really quite amazing. And he's saying that something has to change. He says, you have to be born again, which is a really weird thing. Now, throughout this dialogue, we're going to get some series of tips. We're going to get four of them for how to um, help us to come to faith. And I'm going to highlight them as we go through. But here's the tip I want you to, if you're following along, the thing to write down. The first tip is this. Number one, a childlike spirit is the precondition for faith. Think about that. A childlike spirit is the precondition for faith. The master must become the student. Nicodemus is the ruler, but he has to become like a child again. The adult has to become like a child. Nicodemus has his master's degree in ruling Israel, but he's going to have to go back to kindergarten if he's going to be born again in faith. And there's some humbling that comes with that if you're going to become a student again. And if we're going to receive faith, we're going to have to leave our power and our prestige and our sense of what we're owed and due, we're going to have to leave those things aside and come to Jesus like students. This is what Jesus, this is how Jesus begins this dialogue with Nicodemus. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother woman, mother's womb and be born, can he? There's probably, he probably means you to laugh at this, like, come on, Jesus. <laughs> Can't crawl back in and be born again. Like, that's ridiculous. And, and it's, a, it's a bit of back and forth. It's quite nice. Now, again, when Jesus deals with other Pharisees, other scribes and teachers who ask him questions, often he rejects the question. He suspects that, I think Jesus suspects that there's a trick going on, and he says, you're not asking an honest question, and so Jesus refuses to give them his answers. But I think Jesus gives Nicodemus answers. It seems to me that Nicodemus asks honest questions, and he gets honest answers from Jesus. They may not be the answers he wants to hear. They may not be the most clear answers, but they have an open dialogue. And this is something about Nicodemus' character. I think Nicodemus is shown to be a man who asks honest questions. Every question he seems to ask in this is honest. He's an honest seeker. Uh, later in John's gospel, he's going to ask a question at the Sanhedrin. Again, it's an honest question. He's a man who asks honest questions. He's the kind of person you want on your team or on your board. Someone who's there, who's wise, who's open to be, who bring these things forward. It's lovely in these ways. Okay? And this tells us also that God is willing to receive any honest question we ask him. Have you thought about that? Have you ever thought that maybe God is a, you're too scared to ask God questions? Or too scared to, or maybe, maybe you've had that moment where you've asked a pastor a question and you got utterly shut down in that moment, right? What's the old story about, um, about I don't know if it's a nun or if it's Augustine, it doesn't matter who it was, but the child asks the teacher, he says, what was God doing before he created the world? And the teacher said he was making hell for students who ask questions like that. <laughs> I think some of you feel like that's what it means to approach God with questions. But the truth is, any honest question God is welcoming. He wants your honest questions. He wants to hear where your heart is. It doesn't matter what the question is. He just wants your heart to be pure in this. Let's move on to the next verses, verses 5 through 8. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, this is a complex passage. This is actually quite complex. But if we take it out of order, they're going to make some more sense. So let's look at verse 6 first, actually. Verse 6 first. Verse 6 says... That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Okay? 
Here's the good news. There's actually two realities in the world. There's a spiritual reality and an earthly reality. Nicodemus already believes this. You and I, as Christians, we already believe this. We believe in a material and a spiritual world. And that's the important thing to begin with. We know there's two worlds, something material, something spiritual. Verse 7 is next. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. In other words, because there are these two realities, don't be surprised that I'm saying there's two kinds of birth. Don't be surprised. I'm talking about birth in that spiritual context, not in this earthly context. Okay? Now we come to verse 5, which gives us the conditions for this birth. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, one cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Okay? Entering into the kingdom of God is dependent upon the spiritual birth. Now, I have my thesis about what Jesus is saying here. If you read commentaries, you will find that there's lots of other theses about what's going on here. You're welcome to read those and disagree with me about this. It's not something I have to die on. It's important. But I think the two births he's talking about are quite simple. For each and every one of you, probably 90% of our births, I should say, um, before you were born into the world, they preceded a flow of water when your mother's water broke. And in this way, you were born of water in an earthly way. And when you came to faith in Christ, there was an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit that came as a consequence of that, and you received the flow of God's Spirit as well. And so in the same way that water precedes the birth of human children, so the Spirit of God uh, follows the birth of us into the kingdom of God. I think that's what's going on here, okay? Like I said, other people think different things, and that's fine. They get really interesting in some of these ways. But I believe it's true that we are born physically by means of our mothers and spiritually by means of God's Holy Spirit. And that's part of the new birth. So let's come to verse 8 then. Verse 8 says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's a play on words here. Uh, the word in Greek for wind is pneuma. The word in Greek for spirit is pneuma. Uh, so in each case, it's the spirit blows where it wills. The wind blows where it wills. There's a, there's a play on words, a, a, an intentional, um, uh, an intentional uh, double meaning here that Jesus has when he says these things. And so you hear the sound of the Spirit, and it sounds like he's saying to Nicodemus, right, Nicodemus, you don't understand the wind. How could you understand spiritual things? Like he's pushing him off. And I don't think that's actually the case. He says, hey, you hear the sound of the wind. Even though you don't understand it, you hear it. And what's just gone on? You heard about the deeds of Jesus. You've heard about the things that I've been doing, and you have actually have responded to the Spirit, Nicodemus. You're here because you know how to listen to this wind. And that's what's, and what's missing. What's the next step? That's what he's asking. How do I get this new birth? And that's what we're coming to in just a moment's time. Verses 9 and 10. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how could these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Are you Israel's teacher and you don't get it? Again, honest inquiry. It's an honest question, gets an honest answer. What Jesus is talking about is outside of Nicodemus' experience. In fact, in the background of this, Jesus appears to be referencing Ecclesiastes. There's some echoes of the book of... Remember who wrote Ecclesiastes? Solomon, who's the wisest guy of all time. And so Jesus quotes Ecclesiastes and then says, you're Israel's teacher, as a way of saying that I'm, I'm, I've got more authority than the Pharisees and I've got more wisdom than Solomon and you're going to need something supernatural if you're going to get through this. He's pointing to his authority in this moment. Okay? Again, not a jab at Nicodemus, but a statement of fact. If the best of the help of Israel won't have the answer, where will you get help? In other words, the Pharisee project won't save Israel. It's not going to work. 
In other words, for you and me, working really hard at your spiritual life isn't going to save you. Really beating yourself up to try and get it right isn't going to be enough. It's never going to make it. You don't have the power in yourself to do these things. In fact, that's the second tip if you're thinking about coming to salvation today. We must acknowledge that salvation simply isn't in our power. It's a supernatural matter. There are no natural means you can appeal to to achieve salvation. No sacrifice, no statements, no dramatic motions, no written diatribes, no confessions. Nothing that you can do by your power will achieve that salvation. You're going to have to have some other power, and that's partly what Jesus is pointing to in this passage. Let's read this next section, verses 11 through 15. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Um, before I talk about the section, I'll tell a short story. I remember reading this many years ago. There was a guy going around, and he was sharing the gospel with people in hospital rooms. And he read John chapter 3 to this guy in the hospital room, and the guy got it. The lights went off in his head, and he was like, this is it. I've got it. And, you know, you're th- I was thinking, man, I guess it's John 3.16, the power of this verse to get people. And as the guy was walking away, he, this guy in the hospital leaned back and said, oh, just as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness. <laughs> that was the verse that saved him, which is not according to our expectations, right? Because as far as I'm concerned, that's one of the weirdest phrases in the entire Bible. Okay? But it points to the fact that the word is effective even if we don't understand it. Okay? So let's look at this again for a minute. This is a complex section, and let me see if I can bring some clarity. Verse 11, the simple truth here is that testimony precedes faith. We speak of what we know, testify what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. There is a testimony, a word that's going on, and this is part of our tip for coming to faith. We must hear before we can have faith. You got to hear it before you can have faith. You got to know what you're being asked to believe. Let me show you two brief passages. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him, Jesus, in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? You got to hear the word. If you're going to make a decision about believing, we have to testify to these things. Or one of my favorites, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In Jesus, you also, after hearing to the message of faith, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Three-step process. You hear the news, but hearing it doesn't mean believing it. Once you hear it, you make a decision to believe, and when you believe, you're sealed by the Spirit. Okay? This is part of how we come to faith. It's quite lovely and quite straightforward, okay? So coming back to verse 12 for just a moment in our passage, one thing that's missing, it's difficult to see, is that these verses are actually the, all the, how do I explain, the user plural. So I have to uh, translate this in the uh, New American Texas version, which is this. If I told y'all earthly things and y'all do not believe, how will y'all believe if I tell y'all heavenly things, Okay? Now, there's one Nicodemus in the room. How is Jesus speaking to him as a plural? And I think he's answering the whole council. These aren't words for Nicodemus. These are words for the whole group. You've all seen it. If I show you these things you don't believe, what more can I give you? 
If I give you earthly evidences and you don't believe, how are you going to respond to heavenly evidences? Does that even make sense? It's not going to work. And so he's raised the stakes in these minutes, in these moments. And then in verses 13 and 14, we get to the question of who has the authority to speak. It's Jesus who's ascended to heaven and descended to heaven. And now we get to this business of the serpent in the wilderness. I'm not going to read the passage for you at the moment. You can look it up on your own. It's Numbers chapter 21. You can look it up later. Okay? Israel disobeys God, and as a consequence, they are attacked by venomous snakes. Okay? Okay, bit. All right? And then they cry out to God, help, God, we're upset, okay? And they turn back to God, and uh, Moses intercedes for them, and God's instruction is this. All right, I want you to make a bronze snake and put it on a stick, snakes on a stick. That sounds like a great desert snack, okay? And I'm going to have you lift up the stick in the air, and when they look at the snake, they'll be healed. Very, very weird. On, let's just admit, that's weird, okay? But... Something of the nature of faith is in it, which is that you have to look outside of yourself for help. You have to look above yourself for help. You have to look where God tells you to look if you're going to get help. And maybe this is the important tip for our faith, which is that you don't have to know how it works to know that it works. You don't have to understand the mechanism to know that it's beneficial. And in the same way, you don't have to know how the atonement of death, the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus transforms your life to know that it did transform your life. But you did have to look to him and believe to receive that. It's very important for us. Let's read this last section. Um, and before I read it, I'm going to make a comment. Uh, how many of you have one of those red-letter Bibles? It shows uh, the words of God in red, Okay. Uh, thank you. Many of you will know uh, this, this section often, John 3, 16 to 21, is in red, and they, they, show, they say this is Jesus' voice. There's a strong chance that it's actually uh, John, the author of the gospel's voice, that we flipped out of Jesus, and it's John speaking now. It doesn't matter. It could be Jesus or not Jesus. When we get to heaven, we can ask him, and it won't really matter. It's still the authoritative word of God for us, but it might change how you think about it slightly. So listen to this and think about it. What does it mean if it's John, our author, giving us information we need at this point? And here's he says, that's what I want to say. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I'll stop there for a moment. Um, so, for God so is not so much, it's God loved the world in this way. God loved the world thus, that he gave his son. Do you want to know what love looks like? It looks like the radical self-sacrifice of someone who had everything to give. It's amazing. This is what love looks like. And why did he do this? Why does he sacrifice himself? So that anyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It automatically shifts even into better news. Verse 17, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The reason he sent the son is he wants you to live. He likes you. He wants you. For some reason, he wants to spend eternity with us. And the conditions of that eternity are that we accept the sacrifice that his son made on our behalf. That's what he wants from us. Wow, that's great. But there's a sharp edge to these things, isn't there? In the same way that sometimes light cuts between light and darkness, so the judgment of Christ makes clear the loyalties of human hearts. And that's what we get in verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. If you've looked to the snake, you're saved. If you look to the Jesus on the cross, you're saved. You're not judged because you've been embraced by the light of Jesus. But 
He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, this isn't a threat. It's just a statement of fact. Like there is black and there is white. There are those in Christ and there are those not in Christ, those who've looked to him for salvation and those who look to anything else, which ends up being mostly themselves. It's not a threat. It's just a statement so that we understand what's at stake. Verse 19, this is judgment. Light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Right? Light exposes us, makes us seen. We know what's coming out. And suddenly we saw the light and knew that our deeds would be exposed, and so we withdrew to the darkness. And Nicodemus' story has come back into frame, right? He's there at night. It's dark. He's hiding. How open will you be about this, Nicodemus? Or Nico? Probably goes by Nico. That's my guess. Okay? Nick? Come on, Nicky. What are we going to do here? Verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And then 21 brings us right back to Nicodemus. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This kind of gets heavy, right? Hey, it's dark right now. You know that he who practices righteousness comes to the light, right, Nico? How you like in the darkness right now? It's a very interesting moment. Okay, I want to recap something about us coming to faith, our recipe for coming to faith, and then we're going to talk about Nicodemus for a minute more. One, I want you to come to Jesus as a child. In fact, I don't want to. Jesus does. Jesus wants you to come to him as a child ready to learn. Come with childlike hearts, ready to receive what he has to give us. Two, come to Jesus acknowledging that you can't fix the problem on your own. You don't have it in you to fix this on your own. You need his help. Three, come to Jesus ready to listen and receive the testimony of what God has done. You're going to be, it's going to be on the basis of someone telling you. You're going to receive testimony, and then you believe it. And then fourth and finally, place your trust in Jesus. Put your trust in the king and see what happens. Does Nicodemus learn? Does he learn it? Like, what happens to Nicodemus? Like I said, he shows up two more times in John's gospel. In John uh, chapter 750, the Pharisees and Sanhedrin are discussing Jesus. They don't like him, and Nicodemus asks a good question. I won't read the passage right now, but um, go read it sometime. He asks a good question. He puts a vote in for Jesus, and he gets smacked down hard, right? He gets hit. He, he puts his neck out, and he gets hit for this. And then he shows up one more time, and this is the passage I want to read. John chapter 19, verses 31 to 42. This is the end of Jesus' life. So let me read 31. Uh, This is the end of Jesus' life. The Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath is a high day. What a funny idea, right? Uh, It's not so good to have dead bodies out on the Sabbath, right? We should let them, I don't know, is it a kind of like perverse observation of the Sabbath? We should let them rest by killing them now. Okay, it's very strange. They asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. So you could suffer up to three days on the cross because you support yourself by means of your body. You push on your bottom legs to breathe. uh, And the cross, of course, makes you give up by, you suffocate. And if they break your legs, you die pretty quickly because you can't breathe any longer, right? So they asked permission to break people's legs. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. 
And he who has seen, has seen this has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to be fulfilled the Scripture. Not, one, not a bone of him should be broken. And another Scripture says they shall look on him whom they have pierced. So Jesus is dead, really dead, coming off the cross. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. Another secret disciple. Here we go asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. What's the significance of this? What's the significance of this event? A couple things. Remember, a good Pharisee takes the law, all of the law, very seriously. Let me read you two brief laws from the Old Testament. This is from Numbers chapter 19. The one from Israel who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. Remember, uncleanness could be transmitted. If you were unclean, you'd make other people around you unclean. Nicodemus, the Pharisee who takes the law seriously, has made himself unclean. It's more interesting because the Pharisees take on the priestly laws. Look at me at Leviticus chapter 21, 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, and his brother. Remember the Good Samaritan? This guy beat up on the side of the road, and the priest and the Levite walk by on the other side. And our first judgment is, oh, these guys are terrible for not paying attention to someone. But you know what they were doing? They were observing the law. They might be made unclean, and then they can't perform their duty. But here's Nicodemus the Pharisee, willingly touching the dead body of someone who was not a family member on the night before a high feast in Israel when then he has to excuse himself from the Sabbath and excuse himself from his family and say, I'm sorry, I can't celebrate with you. And they say, why? And he has to say, I touched a dead body. And his fellow Pharisees probably say something like this, who died in your family? Because they'd know he would only touch the dead body of a close family member, and he has to say, I touched the body of Jesus. Nicodemus has placed himself in a position where he has to testify. And the things that were in darkness have come to light. Remember John chapter 3, verse 21. He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. I think he's in. I think he's got it. Okay, let me wrap this up for you really quick. I said at the beginning I'd bring a couple questions. Where are you in this story? Maybe you're a Nicodemus today. Maybe you've got questions about Jesus. Maybe you're attracted to him, but you're uncertain. 
You'd like to know more, but you're being put off by fellow Christians, right? They stink, and they do stink, and you're bothered by that. What's that going to look like for you? You're curious, and you're drawn. Well, I want to encourage you to be childlike. Lay down some of your power, because you have to acknowledge you don't have it in yourself to save yourself. And I want to encourage you to listen to the testimony of what's come before you and of the people around you and of the Christians who shine brightly for Jesus. And you can kind of sideline the Christians who don't shine as brightly. And then maybe, just maybe, when the time is right, it'll be ready for you to place your faith in the Lord. Maybe you could hear that message today. Or maybe you've got a Nicodemus in your life. Chances are most of us do. We got people who are kind of curious, but maybe afraid to ask the question. And let's be honest, asking questions about Christianity isn't so great today. People aren't so keen to choose these things, but they're probably still attracted to Jesus. They might still be watching The Chosen on the weekend, right? The media is attracted to them, even if they don't understand why these things. They like Christ figures in movies and TV shows, even though they don't know why that is, right? Why is, why is Iron Man's sacrifice compelling? Well, because of this big sacrifice, right? <laughs> like, why is it a part of our stories that one person gives his or her life for the lives of others? Well, I'll tell you why. It's ingrained in the fabric of reality. They're Nicodemuses, drawn but not understanding. A couple things I want to say to you for those of you who have Nicodemuses in your life. One, sow seeds and don't worry about the harvest. Jesus has this conversation in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Who knows how long it goes before the end of this, but the fruit, it bears fruit in an unexpected way, and you don't have to worry about that. Leave the fruit to God. Just let him deal with it. Okay? Some of you are worried about your kids and your grandkids and your families and your neighbors, people whom you will, I guarantee you, you will not see the fruit in their lives because you yourself will die before there's fruit. Sow faithfully and trust the Lord. Let him have control over how those things go, okay? The other thing I want to say to us as Christians is that make sure that you stink for the right reasons, okay? Right? Guard your life. Guard your heart. Make sure you're upright for the Lord, but make sure those uprightnesses are in the right places. If you're going to stink, make sure you're stinking in places where because you are truly loyal to the kingdom of God and a world hostile to that kingdom, not because you're a jerk. And with those things, with those things, I want to pray for us. I'm going to invite our musicians to come and take their places. I want to remind you again that when, if people come to you and are upset about Christianity, you can deflect to Jesus. What about Christians doing these things? You can always say, yeah, but, but it's about Jesus, isn't it? And he's pretty cool. You can always turn the conversation to King Jesus. Oh, I know. I really don't have it all together. It's disappointing, isn't it? Uh, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to give you some short explanations, and then we are going to um, shift into baptism. So please, would you bow your heads and pray with me right now? Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that you are the risen king. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your patience with Nicodemus and for your patience with us. If there are any here today, any brothers or sisters, Anyone who has been seeking and is not yet sure, would you come alongside them and give them confidence to place their trust in you? Not confidence, just that nudge, that encourage. Sometimes people need a fire and a drive. If that's the Holy Spirit pressure they need, bring that as well. But draw all men and women to yourself, Lord Jesus. 
For those of us, Lord, who have Nicodemuses in our life, encourage us and empower us to pray faithfully for them, to be faithful people, and help us to receive the conviction where we are, we're smelly for the wrong reasons, and to amend our lives. And now I pray your blessing, Jesus, on this remaining part of our service. Anoint our time, anoint our worship, anoint our hearts and minds. In your name I pray, amen.